Well, good morning. Again, it's good to see you guys today. I'm glad to be here, excited to be here. Always love preaching. Enjoy our time together this way. We're in the book of Colossians, and we will continue to unpackage these verses um, that to many are so controversial, so challenging in so many respects, because I believe that for the most part they have been grievously mistaught and have been ignored for what they are, and it's a, a clarion call to the power of the gospel, a recognition that the gospel uh, usurps and overcomes any and all circumstances and is sufficient to sustain us through what appears to be the most difficult human circumstance, and that is one of slavery. Paul here speaking to the congregants in the church of Colossae, the redeemed of Christ, challenging them to be reminded of the fact that justification can never leave you unchanged. Justification can never leave you unchanged. And so I think today we'll, we'll continue to unpackage the significance of, this, uh, of these verses, verses 22, 23, and 24, focusing primarily on verse 24 today. Before we get into the Word, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Lord, we do love you. Thank you for our time together here today. Thank you for our salvation in Jesus Christ. Thank you for his finished work. Thank you for the fact that we can rest in his finished work, that we have that great opportunity, that he is always making intercession for us as our great high priest, as we were reminded of today in Hebrews chapter 4. We thank you, Lord, for the promises that are contained in Scripture. We thank you, Lord, for the fact that we are the sealed in Christ. And because of that, we are protected, we are kept, we are preserved forever by his finished work, and we can rest in that confident, knowing that what he has done is sufficient for all of the ages, and that we can boldly enter into the throne room, and we can submit our petitions and our cares and our concerns because he does, in fact, care for us. We rejoice in those great truths. Thank you for them. I pray, Lord, today that we will see the wonders of the power of the gospel in these passages that we are looking at here in Colossians chapter 3 the wonders of our justification, how it changes us, how it causes us to see the world differently, how it causes us to see our circumstances differently, how it causes us to be people who are more focused on what has been done for us rather than what we can do for ourselves. Help us, Lord, to be mindful of all that you have done for us. Help us to be always grateful, always rejoicing, always content in the finished work of Jesus Christ. Bless us, we pray today, as we have communion together. Help us to be reminded through the symbols of the elements, the the bread and the cup, of what Christ has done for us. Thank you for this sweet time of fellowship. Thank you for this family feast that you have given to us this day. We praise you in Christ's name. Well, last week I left off with some quotes from uh, Harry Blameyers in his book, The Christian Mind, and I have a couple of other quotes I want to pick up with today. Let's read, um, importantly, the passage that we have before us in Colossians chapter 3. Let's go to 
verse 12, because again, this really is foundational. Paul here having uh, set the table with the significant doctrines of the new man, the new nature, that then acts differently because he's able to. Paul has an expectation that Christians are going to live and think differently. And that's so important. It's important for us. It was important for Paul. Obviously, the Holy Spirit wanted us to understand that. This new creational lifestyle means something. Justification never leaves us unchanged. And so because of that truth, then we demonstrate the reality of it in the way we think. As a man thinks, so he is. And what I want us to understand is that Christians have given, been given the ability to think differently about everything. Absolutely everything. We've lost that. It's because Christianity has become just another category of belief as opposed to the truth. Truth, truth, if you will. There is truth. We're told today that you can't know truth. We're told today that your truth is your truth and my truth is my truth and the two shall never cross. But there's ultimately only one truth and that's God's truth. And we must understand that. And that's what Paul is speaking to here. And so in verse 12, he begins to bring this all together, being mindful of the fact of who we are. He says in verse 12 of Colossians 3, So as those who have been chosen of God, holy and beloved, put on a heart of compassion. Notice the phrase put on. You can now put this on. You have the ability and indeed the desire to do these things. You would ultimately have a desire, you should have a desire to have a heart of compassion, to have kindness, to be humble, to be gentle, and to be patient, as it says in verse 12. That is the new creational lifestyle. Verse 13, bearing with, with, with one another, the idea of forbearance, and forgiving each other, the idea of forgiveness. Whoever has a complaint against anyone, just as the Lord forgave you, so also should you. Now, keeping in mind, that Paul is anticipating that these foundational Christian virtues, these, these elements of the Christian life are going to then demonstrate themselves in a real way as we will find both between a husband and a wife and a parent and child and a father and children and now slaves and masters. So Paul is saying to us, listen to me, you have been redeemed by Jesus Christ. You were redeemed for a purpose. You were not your own. You belong to him. You have been purchased, as Peter would say, that something more, far, with far more value than even silver and gold, but the blood of Jesus Christ. The consequences of it is, is that these people, we, the believers, the redeemed of Christ, are different. Notice all the things that we're able to do. We're forgiving, we're forbearing, we're humble, we're patient, we're kind, we're gentle. We have hearts of compassion. We put on love in verse 14 because we're concerned about the perfect bond of unity, not based upon compromise, but based upon who we are in Jesus Christ. Because of that, peace then reigns within us. It rules us, it governs us. Because we have been called, you were saved for that very purpose in one body and we are to be thankful to be thankful as the redeemed of christ we then have this benefit the word of christ richly dwelling within us why because it contains wisdom and we admonish each other in the context of teaching and we sing hymns and songs that encourage us in that regard 
all of these things driving us to have an attitude of gratitude and thankfulness in our hearts to God. That's verse 16. Knowing that we belong to Christ, we then do things that bring glory and honor to Him. That's the point of verse 17. And we do them in the name of the Lord. Giving thanks through Him to God the Father who has ordained all these things in His perfect sovereign will and purpose. Now, because of that too, we have these exhortations. Wives, be subject to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Notice how everything keeps tying back to Christ. Husbands, love your wives and do not be embittered against them. Children, be obedient to your parents in all things, for this is well-pleasing to the Lord. Fathers, do not exasperate your children so that they will not lose heart. Verse 22, and then these are the passages we've been looking at the last few weeks. Slaves, in all things obey those who are your masters on earth, not with external service as those who merely please men, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, do your work heartily as for the Lord. Do you see a theme here? How many times has Paul been driving you back into Jesus Christ as the motivation for all the things that you're doing? Go back. It begins back in verse 12. Holy and beloved. It just keeps pointing us back into Jesus Christ. Your motivation is Jesus Christ. Your motivation is Jesus Christ. It's because of Christ. It's because of him. It's because of his work. What he has done, not what you have done. It ain't about you. And today, communion will remind us of that. Communion helps us to be reminded of the fact that it's not about us. Right? This is a good reminder. It's not about you. It's about Jesus Christ. It's always about Jesus Christ. When you get to heaven, what do you think it's going to be about? You? It's going to be about who? Jesus Christ. Do you see a theme here? (laughs) Now you're a Christian. I hope you do. (laughs) If you don't, we'll have to work on that. Verse 24, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the reward of the inheritance, it is the Lord Christ whom you serve. For he who does wrong will receive the consequence of the wrong which he has done, and that without partiality. So, So last week we had some ideas that we communicated from uh, Harry Blameyer's book, The Christian Mind, and I wanted to go back and recapture one of those quotes. He notes the following on page 68 of that book. He says, For all teaching of Christian revelation deals with the breaking in of the greater supernatural order upon our more limited, finite world. That's what Paul is ultimately doing for us. What he is saying is that the, 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 the gospel, what Christianity holds to, breaks in on this greater supernatural order, and it ought to be the overarching thing that governs everything, especially the way a Christian thinks about things, the way a Christian approaches certain things. He goes on to say, for the truths of Christian revelation, one and all, put this life decisively within the framework of a bigger one. And the Christian mind, thinking Christianly, cannot for a moment escape a frame of reference which he reaches out to the supernatural. Paul is doing the very same thing. He's telling this group of people, and these are uh, people within the Colossi church. They would be defined in the context of those who are referred to as holy ones at the beginning of the epistle. They are in the church, so there's a group of them apparently, and this would be very common 
the proportionate number of people within the culture at that time, the high percentage would have been slaves. Most people fell within some category of that. They weren't like you and me. Now, there were free people, there were freemen, but there were a lot of slaves too. As I noted, it was estimated at one point in time, one-third of the population of Rome were slaves. One-third. Think about that. One-third. That's a lot of people. That's really a lot of people. I mean, divide this room up into one-third. Think about that for a minute. And Paul is writing to them, and he has an expectation that because they are in Christ, they're going to... They're going to move beyond the temporal and recognize, as we've just noted, that they are working within the supernatural as well. That that is that Christ has saved them, Christ has redeemed them, and he's changed them. Justification never leaves you unchanged. And because you have been changed, you are going to be able to rise above one of the most difficult human conditions known, slavery. And that as a Christian slave... There's going to be an expectation that you are going to live in a way that gives glory and honor to Christ. That's what we're being told. Verse 24 in particular today says, Knowing that from the Lord you will receive the reward of the inheritance, it is the Lord Christ whom you serve. That takes you from the temporal to the supernatural. The supernatural then impacts the temporal. And impacting the temporal then causes people to see you differently as opposed to what other people would do in that same circumstance. The anticipation on the part of Paul is that a Christian slave is going to be different than an unregenerate slave. And that it's going to be identifiable. Why? Because he's not going to be or she's not going to be engaged in the, in the execution of their duties out of mere lip service as men-pleasers, but living as unto the Lord. The Puritans used to say this, all of life is worship. All of life is worship. That's what Paul is ultimately saying here as well. All of life is worship. That's why we see the constant reference back to the Lord, back to the Lord. Whatever you do, whether you eat or you drink, you do it all for the glory of who? God. That's what we're told in Scripture. Verse 17 says, whatever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks through him to God the Father. Wait a minute. Wait, Paul, come on now. You're just a colonial white guy. You don't know anything. You're, you're just a, you're a racist at heart. This is what's being taught today about this. I've got a paper back in my office written by a professor from some seminary that basically just says that Paul's a racist and we need to ignore this. That's what he says. That Paul was not under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, but rather was under the inspiration of the, of the, uh, of the uh, um, uh, market class of people. That he was simply kowtowing to the economy of the day and the people who were in charge and that he was just trying to support them. That's nonsense. Paul is saying to us here that the gospel even reaches into the most dire human condition. The most dire human condition. And we read about that. We talked about it. We talked about that at great length. James Emery White, in his, in his book called A Mind for God, 
talks about the impact of the Christian mind and the importance of understanding the world, he, reads, he writes as follows, and this is important, I believe. For the Christian mind, understanding the world we live in is decisive on two fronts. First, we need to be aware of how such worldviews might be living in us. We, we've seen this, right? We just went through a recent season here in the United States where, where the church co-opted itself into the political arm of, of certain political parties in order to achieve and to rectify that which they thought was wrong. Not through the power of the gospel, but through other means, adapting itself into the views of the world rather than stepping into the gospel and talking about the gospel. We have all kinds of things going on, social justice and a lot of other things that the churches have bought into in an idea that somehow we're going to alter or do something that's going to impact these conditions outside of the realm of the gospel emphasizing to our detriment the very distinctions that Paul say no longer exist for the redeemed of Christ. In verse 11, he says a renewal in which there is no distinction between Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave and free man, but Christ is all and in all. The response of the church to those things that, that plague our culture are not ultimately political solutions, although they can work in some context, but political issues are always downstream from the gospel, not upstream from them. The gospel should never be altered. It's the gospel that's upstream. It flows down and impacts these other things. That's what Paul's ultimately saying. And so Mr. White here in his, in his book makes that point. We can't allow the worldview systems to change the way that scripture works, basically is his point. He says this, is our thinking informed and directed by the authority of Scripture and the leading of the Holy Spirit, or have we succumbed to the subtle temptation of moral relativism? Do we mark our years by dedication to God as the eternal purposes, or do we strip our lives of any sense of calling and answer only to the voice of autonomous individualism? Do we live in the light of the great redemptive drama, selflessly giving ourselves to the advance of the kingdom and the building of the church, or do we find ourselves drifting into a narcissistic hedonism that makes all spiritual alignments a consumer affair? Do we view the world through a materialistic lens, or do we see a God who not only created, but who, through his providence, continues to oversee that creation? That's important. Second, we need to understand how the world affects those around us who we will engage for Christ, not simply in terms of intellectual challenge, but also in terms of unmet needs. How might we begin to live and speak and act and serve in ways that might intersect with their deepest questions and longings? The world has left much unmet. And so what we find here then is this. It would be interesting to see how other slaves would react to the opportunity to work with a Christian slave. How would that impact? But Paul is teaching here that ultimately there is an anticipation that that is going to happen. That Christians are going to be impacting the culture because of who they are in Jesus Christ because a Christian's focus is always eternal, supernatural, and Christ-driven. That's it. A Christian's perspective is eternal, it's supernatural, and Christ-driven. Look at this. At the beginning of chapter 3 in Colossians, Paul says this. 
Therefore, if you have been raised up with Christ, keep seeking the things above where Christ is. Seated at the right hand of God. There you have the doctrine of the ascension, driving you and serving as a baseline for Paul. Look at verse 2. Set your mind on the things above, not on the things that are on the earth. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is our life, is revealed, then you also will be revealed with him in glory. I bring that up because in verse 24, Paul's going to reach back into that theme again when he brings up the issue of inheritance. Inheritance. Back in verses 3, 1 through 4, we have that picture of our inheritance, who we are in Jesus Christ, what we have to look forward to, that we look eternally, we look forward. Paul would say pressing on, right? Not looking back, but pressing on. And so for us, the Christian mind is important in terms of being engaged in the moments in which we live and applying those very important principles. And so for Paul, here again, this new creational lifestyle plays itself out in the reality of where a person is in their life and what they're living. Ultimately, what we find is that we need to liberate the gospel from its cultural captivity and restore it to the status of public truth. Not just a truth, but the truth. Truth, truth. There are a lot of Christians who don't believe that. There are a lot of Christians out there, and I get, I get magazine articles and things through emails and all sorts of stuff where this is being attacked. Paul, at the beginning of Colossians in chapter 1, verses 9 through 10, would pray that the Colossae Christians would have an increase in their wisdom and knowledge. That's not information. That's mere information, which is the trend today because of the phone, and we can just look at it, we get information nonstop. It's just information, information, information. Paul's more concerned about the idea that there's a truth that transforms the mind. Not just an endless volley of nonsense and folly and rumor masquerading as knowledge and wisdom and truth. It's not. It's not. God's word is the truth. So the answer to those things that plague us as a nation, as a people is the gospel, is the gospel, because it is the truth. Now, in verse 24, Paul says this. Verse 23, we looked at the idea that whatever you do, do your work heartily as for the Lord rather than for men. Again, that the driving impetus for even the slave is the fact that he belongs to Christ. It's interesting, is it not, that their salvation did not result in the end of their slavery. How's that work for the prosperity gospel? You're going to preach the prosperity gospel to a slave? How's that, how's that going to happen? What's going to happen? Well, nothing. It's, so again, don't, I want you to think about that for a minute. There are slaves in the Colossi church. God has saved them according to his sovereign will and purpose. God has brought them into newness of life through the work of Jesus Christ, yet they remain slaves. That's significant. That's very So again, context, right? Context is so important. So understanding that, Paul 
issues these exhortations, whatever you do, do your work heartily as for the Lord rather than for men. Verse 24, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the reward of the inheritance. It is the Lord Christ whom you serve. As I noted, the Puritans often said that all of life is worship, and so too here Paul makes that same emphasis. So here Paul is talking about the work that's to be undertaken. It's to be undertaken with a certain mindset. The slave, because he belongs to Christ, is going to have a certain mindset about his work. Knowing, he says, knowing that from the Lord. That, that is a significant word. It's, um, uh, it's an unceasing line of thought. The tense here is a perfect tense, and it has a present tense meaning. And so it describes what is to be an unceasing line of thought, always knowing, always reflecting on that fact, regardless of the assignment that's given. So what Paul is saying, this is remarkable stuff. I, I hope that you're as enamored with it as I am. But it's, it's, it's just like a gut punch. It really is. He is saying, knowing that the slave, knowing this, so the slave is a theologian. Sproul would say that everyone's a theologian. The slave is a theologian. He's going to anticipate that the slave is going to be a theologian and that the slave is going to apply the theology that he's being taught in the Colossae church to his circumstances, to his situation. That's why the word knowing is there. And so for Paul, for everybody, including this class of believers within this Colossae church, they are going to know, it's going to be, think about it for a minute, friends, think about the definition, an unceasing line of thought. An unceasing line of thought, regardless of the assignment. Some translations interpret this passage or this phrase to be more causally connected. They use the phrase, since you know. So they approach it from the standpoint of an established truth that governs. Since you know. You know this to be true. So we can look at it from the standpoint that it's a continuous, unceasing line of thought, or it's an action predicated upon a developed understanding of a fact. That's significant. Why, then? What is the motive that we have? Why would the slave do these things? What would be a motivation? Well, certainly gratitude for what Christ has done. That's an overarching theme that we've seen in Colossians. An understanding that they are the beloved of God, that would be part of it as well. But Paul uses a different motivation here for them, something that would have really rang true and significant for someone within this class of people. Knowing that from the Lord you will receive the reward of the inheritance. So you have an unceasing line of thought. The motivation is driving you into this mind frame, this, this frame of reference, that even in spite of the despicable circumstances that you find yourself in, you are doing it for the Lord and that the Lord is going to reward you accordingly with an inheritance with an inheritance. Now, think about that for a minute. That's significant. How many slaves would have had an inheritance? 
None of them. What are you going to inherit from your, slave, your dad who's a slave? More slavery. That's what would happen. And so the idea of inheritance, and that's a big deal culturally too. It's, not, it's still a big deal today. I mean, I've, I've been involved in significant lawsuits over issues regarding inheritance and who gets what and how much of what they get. Spent countless hours and time and money fighting over that. That happens. But back in the day, inheritance here had even a more significant issue um, in terms of a person's future. Um, we have the story of the prodigal son, right? We see that picture of how one squandered their inheritance. We have the picture of the one who comes to Christ and says, I want to follow you, right? But I can't follow you until I go back and bury who? Dad. Why is that such a big deal? Why does he have to go back and bury dad? He wants his inheritance. What happens if he doesn't show up? He, somebody else is going to get it, right? What does Christ say? Take up your cross and follow me. Let the dead bury the dead. Oops. <laughs> so much for my inheritance and my best life now. Ugh. So, we have this picture of a mind frame, a mindset, an unceasing line of thought as it relates to the fact that the motivation is tied to the reality of what I am and who I am and Jesus Christ and what he has promised to me. You're going to receive from the Lord your compensation. The Lord is always just and fair. He's always going to be gracious, generous beyond comparison, and his grace can never be outmatched. That's what we have a picture of here. I like this picture. And I, I can only imagine what this would have sounded like for a slave to hear. These are words of hope. Peter does the very same thing. Turn to, turn to 1 Peter. Peter here writing to dispersed Christians. We know that from verse 1, these elect exiles. This picture of anticipating that which is yet to come, the already but not yet. Verse 3, Peter writes, again, these are persecuted Christians. We've talked about this at great length. I don't have to go back and recapture all that, but just for summary's sake, life was not easy for these people. Life was not easy. We know that from the content of the epistle as you get further into it with what they were having to deal with. But here Paul, Peter says this, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his great mercy has caused us to be born again to a, what? Living hope, okay? A living hope through the erection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Verse 4, to do what? To obtain a what? Inheritance, which is what? Imperishable and what? Undefiled and will not what? Fade away. And what else is good about it? It's reserved. It's reserved in heaven for you. 
for you. What? Who are protected by the power of God through faith for salvation, ready to be revealed at the last time. Verse 6, in this you greatly rejoice. Look at this, one of my favorite passages in Scripture. In this you greatly rejoice. What, what's, Paul, what's Peter's reaching back into? He's reaching back into the fact of the established guarantee of the inheritance. All right? So in this, the power, the, the overwhelming story of your salvation, the overwhelming glory associated with, with the power of Christ to redeem, to seal, right? We want to reach into Revelation chapter 9 for a minute. We can even see that picture there. The sealed are, are, are exempt from the hordes of the pit, the guilt and despair. So Paul, Peter, building on that, all that same theology, in this you greatly rejoice, even though now for a little while. Think of a slave thinking about that. If necessary, you have been distressed by various trials. So that the proof of your faith being more precious than gold, which is perishable, even though tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And even and though you have not seen him, you love him. And though you do not see him now, but believe in him, you greatly rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory, obtaining as an outcome of your faith the salvation of your souls. Wow. So for Paul, that same theme that's what they're thinking about. This inheritance is real. It's guaranteed because why? It's tied to the finished work of Jesus Christ. It's tied to Christ. Now, what do I know about Christ? Well, I know a lot of things about Christ. I know that according to Hebrews, that he's making intercession for me as my great high priest. That he is my advocate. He's my lawyer, constantly pleading my case, if you will. Paul would reach into the picture of reconciliation in chapter 1. I have been reconciled. He stands before the Father and he says, John Tucker is mine. He is mine. And no one, nothing shall ever take him from my hands. He is mine. I am perpetually continually reconciled with the Father. That's my inheritance. That will never be taken from me. That is imperishable. Though anything that anyone else may give me in the context of an earthly inheritance, that's all going to banish and be consumed by either rust or fire, moth or decay. But my salvation is always guaranteed because of Jesus Christ. Communion reminds me of that. Communion puts me back into the context of what is actually real. That is real. The rest of this, it's real, but it's temporal. Remembering, too, that we're elect exiles, right? We're in Babylon, waiting for the new kingdom that Christ has established and will give to us. So for Paul... That's what he wants these slaves to think about. Knowing that from the Lord you will receive the reward of the inheritance. 
And again, there is so much theology, and if you get it wrong, the inheritance doesn't mean anything. If you think it's all about you and what you've done and how good you're being and how good you might be and how good you're going to be in the future, and you're going to do all sorts of good things, and how could I not have all these things because I'm such a catch? Who wouldn't want me? No. Their inheritance is based upon the finished work of Jesus Christ alone. That's it. That's why it's guaranteed. This is my son in whom I'm well pleased. On the cross, Christ says what? It is finished. It is finished. It's finished. So the motivation for the slave is the power of the gospel, the consequence of the finished work of Christ, the power of Christ, the future promise of what is given to the redeemed of Christ, which is imperishable, incorruptible, Even though now for a little while, life is hard, it's difficult, it's challenging, it's disappointing, it can be discouraging for a little while. Because our life is as a vapor, we're told in Scripture. It's a vapor. It's a a fog that passes, it's like the morning fog. You wake up in the morning, you see some mist over the backyard, And within moments, it's gone. That's our life. Eternity, though, on the other hand, now that's forever and ever and ever and ever and ever and ever and ever ever. to the nine millionth, billionth, killionth power to the for the ever. So what Paul is ultimately saying here is that rather than looking to an earthly master or to our terrestrial circumstances for one's compensation, the slave is to look beyond the immediate, beyond the relationship between himself and the master, even past this life, and look unto the Lord, referring to Christ for what he needs and desires. Man, that's, that's, that's just so powerful. And I'm just, it's not easy to do. Our tendency is to not even remotely go there. Our tendency is to slip into self-sufficiency and, and trying to find more purpose in what we're doing presently in hopes that it's going to get us through the next day. Remember, Revelation 9, the mark of the unsealed is grief and despair. The hope of the... The sealed is one of hope and joy because of Christ. Because of Christ. So today, as we participate in communion, I want you to think about your inheritance. Think about it. Not your temporal inheritance. Think about what Christ has reserved and is preserving and importantly has guaranteed and secured for you forever, forever. Communion for me is a time of celebration. It's not necessarily a time for us to be morose and down in the mouth, but to use it as an occasion for celebration. When we get together as families and friends, 
we celebrate, right? We, we rejoice in knowing each other. We look forward to the time that we will have together. We enjoy coming over to someone's house. It's great to be invited over to someone's house, is it not? I've been invited to people's homes, and they prepare a meal for me and Debbie, and it's a wonderful occasion. I absolutely love that. It makes my heart glad. So too today, you've been invited to a feast, a meal. It should make your heart glad. Now, we don't come to the table lightly. We don't come to it in a flippant attitude. That was part of the problem in the Corinthian church that Paul would have to correct. But we come to it with the right attitude, rejoicing in the fact that I have an inheritance in Jesus Christ that is incorruptible, imperishable, guaranteed and secured for me forever because what he has done for me and the elements remind me of what he has done for me. He has freed me from the bondage of sin and he's placed me in his new covenant. His blood that was shed for me. Without the, remission of, without the shedding of blood, there is what? No remission of sin. Christ shed his blood for me. His blood was applied to me by God according to his sovereign will and purpose, meaning what? I am now secured and saved because of the finished work of Christ. That's what we're doing. What a time to celebrate. What a great time of hope. We'll take a moment to reflect on that truth, and then the men will come up and we'll serve you and enjoy our time together.